2 Kings chapter 8 is we're going to be tonight, and there is no way to make these two little stories relate to each other, so we're going to do two little devotionals, and then we're going to go home early. Is that okay with you guys? So here, the first one, he, he just read a moment ago, and it's, it's, it's an interesting story. The first, uh, this is a character that we've seen already. You, you remember this, the Shunammite woman who was so impressed with Elisha's ministry that she decided to build onto her house an apartment for him. Y'all remember this lady, right? And, um, and, and, and just had a lamp and, and everything for him to stay when he was passing through. And Elisha was so impressed with all that she had sacrificed for him uh, that she, he said to her, ask me for anything. Well, she didn't want anything. She's okay. But, but, but she didn't have a child. And so she, he promised her a child by the next year. She had one. Later, that child died. She got upset, went to Elisha. Uh, in emergency, Elisha came back and raised him from the dead. Now, we thought she kind of just kind of faded off and lived happily ever after, but that's not really true. This is one of the few follow-up stories we get at all in Scripture. And in this story, Elisha still is obviously in contact with her, staying in that house, telling her God's will for her. And he says to her, there's going to be a a long famine, a seven-year famine. This beats Elijah's three-and-a-half-year by twice, right? There's going to be a seven-year famine, and I don't want you caught up in it. You're faithful, so you need to go somewhere else to live during that time. Because always, a famine is always, in the Old Testament, a famine is always a sign that Israel's been unfaithful. So God's going to punish, but you don't need to be punished. I'm telling you to go away. So she goes into Philistine territory. Which might remind you of another Old Testament story. Let me just jog your Old Testament history. Do you remember another, a, a woman who lived in Israel, and because of a famine, she had to go live in Moab for a few years? Anybody remember who this is? Naomi and the story of Ruth and all that's just a fascinating thing. Sometimes when God's people go faithless, God's faithful people move. We move. We go on the move uh, in, in order to stay faithful and not live among the unfaithful. It also might remember, you might be caused to remember when David had to get out of the clutches of Saul and he went into Philistine territory. So this woman goes away for seven years. Obviously her husband dies during that time. We already knew he was an old man anyway. So he didn't survive those seven years in Philistine territory. She comes back and finds that her land, her home, and everything has been, has been taken up by the king of Israel as, as kind of a national thing, right? The, the nation owns her house, getting all the money from all the land that she had. And she decides, I'm going to go beg. I'm going to go beg the king to get my house and my land back. But unbeknownst to her, God's already kind of working, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, not Elisha, Elisha never appears in the story. Gehazi, his servant, is talking to the king of Israel. For some reason, he's visiting the king, and the king sits, sits there and he says, Gehazi, I really want to know something. Tell me all the Elisha stories. Tell me the cool things that he did. And oh, there's so many things he could have told him. In fact, he probably just did our VBS from last summer. He probably just did that VBS kind of show, right? Let's talk about the axe head floating. Let's talk about Naaman. Let's talk about all these great stories. And then he starts talking about this woman that does so many good things for Elisha, builds an addition to her house for him, but, and, God, and God blesses her with a child through Elisha, and then the child dies, and Elisha raises him back to, to, to life, and the king goes, you gotta be kidding me. The king is loving these stories, and just so happens, as he is telling that story, 
the woman comes in, prepared to beg for her land back. And Gehazi goes, well, what do you know? The woman we're talking about and her son's right there. Look at that. And, oh, the king says, well, come in here. You tell me your version of the story. What happened? She tells the story. He is so enamored with the rest of the story that he gives her her entire property back and every penny it had made since she left. Now, that's just the story. That's a fascinating thing to me. But what do you go? You look at that and you go, well, what's the big deal? What do you draw from that? Well, can I tell you a couple things is this. It's important for God's people to have a good reputation, it seems to me. So they're having this conversation, and they start talking about her. God works in mysterious ways. It's like, it's like a, do you think it's a coincidence that when she comes prepared to beg, does that remind you of any New Testament story? A woman, a widow, coming to beg from a person who will judge her situation. Does this remind you of any... Luke 18 parable, the woman going to come and beg and beg and beg and beg, and finally the king comes. That's kind of what it reminds me of. But she's prepared to beg, and, but, but God's worked it out to where she's not have to beg at all. God has this conversation going on even as she arrives. Is that coincidence? I don't think so. I don't think we're supposed to think so. And then the way they talk so favorably about her, the, the reputation of Elisha serves to bless people. And that's the way it needs to be for us, too. The reputation of the godly will produce some good even when the godly aren't present. Live such a good life among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will glorify God on the day he visits us. You know what he's saying? Live such a good life, people, that when somebody accuses you, when you're not even present, accuses you of a certain thing, everybody goes, him? No, I don't believe that at all. I know that person. He would never do that. Your reputation. It reminds me a little bit about when Pharaoh has those bad dreams and no one can interpret it, but suddenly the cupbearer goes, Oh, I need to tell you about Joseph. He starts talking good about Joseph. He raises Joseph up, and Joseph gets to be number two in the land. I'll tell you how I use this for me. So Melissa again has found out that they, uh, one of her administrators is going to be replaced by somebody else. And she says, you know, I don't know what I feel about that because you never know, no matter how bad the other one may have been, the new one may be worse. You just never know. I hope she's not watching. Anyway, so I'm kidding. There's not, but, the, but the whole thing, they're going to be replaced another one. What, she's all nervous and she'll just talk about it. We'll go on walks and she'll talk about it every night for six months. It's just like, oh. Oh. And so I start praying. I start, God, put, put the goodness, the thought of the goodness of Melissa into the heart of this person. Let them already be prepared to think well of her and bless her. I think that's what we draw from Joseph. I think that's what we draw from this story. Live your life in such a way that your reputation, when people bring up your name, it's a good conversation. Let's give them something to talk about, right? Yeah, a good old Bonnie Raitt song. And then, second story comes. And I promise you this is about the same way. This is, a, this is another weird story, and they don't relate at all. And you're like, what's this got to do? This is just lesson number two. All right, here it goes. Verse 7. Elisha came to Damascus, 100 miles away from Samaria, the capital of Israel. 
Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and when it was told him, the man of God has come here, that's always a bad sign. When God's prophet goes to your hometown, you need to go somewhere for a while, right? Because he's always bringing bad news. He's going out of Israel to another nation. It's kind of weird. What's he got to do with other nations? Well, that's part of the application, but the man of God has come here. The king said to Hazael, Take a present with you, go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from the sickness? I want you to take him a great big, big bribery gift, and I want you to ask him, Am I going to recover from the illness I've got? So Hosea went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods from Damascus, 40 camel loads of good, cool stuff. And when he came and stood before him, he said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? Listen to this weird answer. Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall surely recover, but the Lord has actually shown me he will certainly die. That's weird, isn't it? Go tell him. He's going to be okay. He's going to recover. But just between the you and me, He's history. Didn't that seem like a lie? Didn't that seem like some kind of deceit? Kind of fake him out, make him feel okay, and then he's going to croak. Well, what, what kind of answer? Well, you, you then understand by the rest of the story, but there's this weird, awkward moment first. And he says, he fixed his gaze and stared at him. So Hazael and Elisha have this moment staring at each other eye to eye, face to face, and it's frozen in time for a second until he was embarrassed. They started feeling awkward, and the man of God, Elisha, wept. He just breaks out in tears after telling this story. What's the deal? Right? That's what you're asking. And Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And Elisha answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses. You will kill their young men with a sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, What is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Now look at 1 Kings 19 up here. We're in 2 Kings 8, right? This is going back to when Elijah was suffering with depression the chapter after the mount carmel thing and one of the things he did to elisha is he gave him a job and this is what he said return on your way to the wilderness of damascus and when you arrive you shall anoint hazael to be king over syria god had already planned this many many years ago it was supposed to be elijah's job but he never got to it and now here it is years later elisha's finally getting to this job the timing is just as important as anything he already knew this. Elijah didn't get to it, but Elisha now does. He says, you're going to be king, and you're going to attack my people. You are going to be a thorn in my people's sides, right? And Hazael says, how in the world is this going to happen? You're going to be king. So he departed from Elisha. He came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say? And he told him the truth. He told me you would certainly recover. That's the first line. He doesn't die of the disease he had. 
He doesn't die of the illness. That's what he was wanting to know. But he does die because he can't recover from murder. Notice the next line. The next day he took the bedcloth, he dipped it in water, spread it over his face till he died. Hazael became king in his place. Elisha was right. He did recover from the illness, but he could recover from the suffocation that this guy brought on him. Weird story, isn't it? What in the world is any value in this story? Well, there's a couple of things. One is that Elisha was recognized even by foreign nations. God is active. God has no boundaries. He has business that he takes care of in every nation on the planet. You believe that still today? You think he's, do you think he's limited to, uh, is there a, a, a God without borders, like doctors without borders? Is there, is there any borders to God? No, he He's got the whole world in his hand. Right? That's what we're saying. He's got the whole world. Yeah, Gary, Gary Buck's about to join in. I'm going to quit. So, he, he's saying God, even these non-Israelites recognize the power and the wisdom and the effectiveness of Elisha and his God. And I love that. I, I want us to be a people that says, you know, we want God to be glorified and known across the world. That's why we do world missions. It's not just important for him to God bless America. We want him to be a God who blesses the world, don't we? Seriously. It's also true that God is sovereign and he uses foreign nations to discipline his own people. Let's fast forward for just a second to chapter 13. At that time, I may have put 12 on there, 12, right? At that time, Hazael, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Hazael set his face to go up against Jerusalem, the king of Judah took the sacred gifts that were in the temple and paid him off. He made Hazael go away by giving him all the money of the temple. Next, next screen. This is a ch- chapter later, first, 2 Kings 13. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, at which time he probably killed the women who were pregnant, slashed them open, killed the children. That's when all that stuff happened. God knew what he was doing. He was, you know, there's famine is one punishment for God, God's people being unfaithful, but so is being victim to the wars of other nations. One last thing, and we're done. This, by the way, happened later with captivity to Babylon and Assyria, right? That's what Habakkuk is all about. But the most impressive thing to me for Elisha in this story is how he wept. He wept because he looked into the eyes of the one who would be the agent of punishment upon his own people, and it broke his heart. This reminds you of one really impressive way that he foretells or foreshadows Jesus. We're going to be coming upon this, what we call the the week of the triumphal entry. We're going to be talking about that some in the near future. But you remember this, as he's going to Jerusalem for the last time, the people all put palm branches down. He walks in with a donkey. You remember this? And they're celebrating him as something. Hosanna, Hosanna, uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're proclaiming him the Messiah. But the week is going to end with him on a cross. in a grave. But as he rides that donkey and is about to actually come over the Mount of Olives and go into Jerusalem, this is what happens. 
When he drew near and he saw the city, God's city, the Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If you had known just to be God's people and obey him, and you would have peace. That's what Shalom, Shalom, Jerusalem is all about, the city of peace. That's only, though, if you're God's people. But it's hidden from your eyes. You can't see it, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize God when he came. You weren't being faithful as God's people and everything about this city and this temple is going to be destroyed and Jesus can see it. He knows it's going to happen. He can't do a thing about it because he came to try, right? No, There was nothing he could have done about it. But did he care? It broke his heart. There's one other time when Paul did this, and here's when Paul said it. Philippians chapter 3, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Did he hate his enemies? No. It broke his heart that there are people who need the gospel, people who could sure use the joy and the peace and the security that comes from the gospel who just won't accept it. They work against it. They resent it. They hate it. The very thing they need the most. Jesus was feeling The same thing Elisha was feeling on a much grander scale, for sure. So, these two little devotionals. Make a positive impression for the gospel. Keep living it. Keep living it to leave a good taste in people's mouth. Be the aroma of Christ. When you leave their presence, you leave behind the aroma of Christ. That's what Paul means in Titus 2 when he tells his people, tells Titus to tell the people of Crete, make the teaching about God our Savior attractive by living it. We need to do that too. Keep giving people something to talk about and think about when we are in their presence or when we're not even there. Let's give them a positive vibe about the words and the teachings of the truth and let us hope strongly, let us hope strongly that people will one day respond to it and let's occasionally feel so strongly about this that we weep over the fact that so many choose not to. We do care. We do want them to be in here. Because the truth is, the only way to real peace that everybody seems to pray about, that everybody seems to want at every beauty pageant, that every seem a politician seems to think they have a plan for, there is only one way to that peace, and it's not through politics. It's through a Savior. And don't you wish... The world knew that. If there's anyone who needs to respond this evening, make it known as we stand, as we sing the invitation song.